pastor and author A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, generally speaking, most people either view God through the eyes of religion or through the eyes of Jesus. There really isn't a whole lot of in-between if you think about it. Even an atheist, if you ask them what they think about God, they will answer by telling you what they think about religion, which makes sense because they don't know God. The truth is, uh, Christians should be neither surprised nor offended when unbelievers talk about God in the context of religion, because while not being acquainted with God, they're often well acquainted with religion. What should, however, surprise and offend us deeply is the fact that there are Christians, many Christians, who view God through the eyes of religion far more than they view him through the eyes of Jesus Christ, which is not only a misinterpretation of God for themselves, but it is a misrepresentation of God to the rest of the world, which is a serious problem, by the way, because as Christians, we're supposed to be his representatives to this world, right? We're supposed to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to other people. And yet if when other people look at us, they see religious behavior devoid of the character of Christ, right? If the spirit of Christ in us is not the most noticeable, unavoidable part of every interaction that other people experience when they encounter us, then honestly, what are our lives telling this world about who God is? Right? If you are someone else's introduction to Jesus Christ, if your life is, is the only Jesus some people will ever see, then what does Jesus look like to them? Because if we're being honest, the church hasn't always been an accurate reflection of the character of Christ. The truth is we've been judgmental toward the world. We've made certain sins nearly unpardonable while winking at others. Right? At times, we've been more interested in spreading our politics than we have been with spreading the gospel. Sometimes we're more concerned about winning arguments than we are with winning hearts. Right? We, we've focused more on being culturally relevant than we have with creating a culture within the church that truly honors Christ. In many cases, we've replaced teaching the word of God with motivational talks that excite our emotions but leave our souls empty. And in just a few generations, we've created an entire industry around Western church culture. And in the process, I'm afraid we may have missed the heart of God. So listen, this world doesn't need more religion. It needs more Jesus, which means as his representatives in this world, we don't need to be more religious. We need to be more like him. Hey, I think we can afford to be less religious if that's what it takes to be more like Christ. I do. I think we can afford to be less religious if that's what it takes for us to be more like Christ. Because when it comes to the spiritual sickness that is plaguing our society, religion is not the answer. Jesus is. And notably, the Word of God has actually been pointing out that very truth from the Old Testament on, as we're going to see in our story today as we continue to work our way through the book of 1 Samuel. Because as I often say, although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. Right? What people need today is what people have always needed. It's Jesus. 
By the way, the reason people have been leaving the modern church in mass in the West for a couple of generations now is not because they're tired of Jesus. No, it's because they're tired of religion. So if that trend is going to be reversed, then his people need to focus less on religious behavior and more on being like Christ. And just to be clear, this isn't a church attendance issue. Okay? It is a life and death issue. We're not talking about where people spend their Sundays. We're talking about where they spend eternity. Besides which, when church people focus on being more like Jesus, church involvement takes care of itself. That's certainly what we see in Acts 2 when the church was formed as a direct result of the people of God focusing on simply living like Jesus lived, proclaiming the gospel, worshiping together, and caring for one another. Luke says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, Acts 2, 47. Right? That's what it all boils down to, the salvation and discipleship of lost people when found people focus on being less religious and more on being like Christ, which is what this world really needs from us now more than ever. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time, and we're going to look at the, the stark contrast between following a religion and following God and how each of those affects us and those around us as well. 1 Samuel 14, we'll pick up where we stopped last week at verse 24 and read through verse 30. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jonathan, King Saul's son, and his armor bearer, they attacked the Philistine army while Saul was hiding in a cave with his own army in fear of the Philistines. And because of Jonathan's faith and courage to do what God had called his people to do in the first place, to drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan so that God's people could possess the land, God went before Jonathan and his armor bearer and threw the Philistine army into confusion by way of a great earthquake, which in turn gave Saul the courage to enter the fight, and as a result, the Israelites rout the enemy, and now the Philistines are on the run, which is where the story picks up today. Saul is now determined to run the enemy down and finish them off, except that unlike Jonathan, Saul's motivation is not to glorify God or to save his own people. It is to glorify himself and to try and salvage his own legacy after his sin back in chapter 13 where he's rejected by God as king. So it says the people were hard pressed that day and Saul laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I'm avenged on my enemies, which is why the people were hard pressed. 
right? Because of Saul's oath forbidding anyone to eat, which on the surface sounds very spiritual, right? To call the people to a fast to honor the Lord in the day of battle, when in reality, this was really all about Saul. Listen, listen to how the oath is worded. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. This was Saul's personal vendetta. It was also highly religious behavior for Saul to make an oath, and yet in no way it reflected the heart of God as it neither brought glory to God or salvation to the people of God. What it did do was attempt to bring glory to Saul at the expense of the people who were not only fighting the Philistines, but now they're also fighting hunger and exhaustion as well because of Saul's religious oath. Yet the people are faithful to pursue the Philistines, which, by the way, was a grueling. This was a forbidding pursuit over steep hills and rough terrain for hours on end, which make, makes Saul's oath even harder to reconcile as the Israelites chase the Philistines into the forest where God provides for them the perfect energy-giving food to enable them to continue doing His will, driving the Philistines out of the land. So God provides large quantities of honey dripping on the ground from honeycombs of wild bees in the trees of the forest. This is like a dream for me right? Hiking through the woods and there's honey dripping out of the trees on the ground. What a sight it must have been. And of course, not knowing about the oath, Jonathan eats some of the honey, which accomplishes its intended purpose as he immediately is revived for the fight until the people tell him about the oath. To which Jonathan replies, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, what would have been a complete victory, driving the Philistines out, right? That's now going to be incomplete because the people are losing steam before the job is done, before God's will can be accomplished. And if you look at the word troubled, interestingly enough, in verse 29, when, when Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land, it's the ancient Hebrew word akar, which has to do with sin and calamity. It's the same word used in Joshua 7, 24 through 26 to describe the actions of an Israelite named Akan, a man who steals uh, several costly items that were devoted as sacred to God from spoils of war. And as a result of his sin, the Israelites lose their next battle, including dozens of their own soldiers, and ultimately Akan and his entire family are put to death, right? Trouble. It's calamity because of sin. And then again in Judges 11.35, the same word is used to refer to a foolish oath that Jephthah makes, which results in his own daughter being put to death by his own hand. He's troubled. It's calamity because of sin. The point being, the kind of trouble this word describes is sinful behavior in a religious context that always results in calamity. And that's just what's happening here with Saul and Jonathan and the Israelites. Saul makes this foolish religious oath, which not only condemns the mission of the Israelites, but it condemns Saul's own son, Jonathan, to death for violating an oath he knew nothing about. You see, it just underscores the fact that religious behavior and righteous behavior are not always the same thing. Okay, just because something is religious doesn't make it righteous. In fact, often quite the opposite. You know, the majority of the people who refused to follow Jesus when he was on the earth were the religious people. 
right? The men and women who grew up going to the synagogue and learning all about God. And so the very people who should have been flocking to Jesus were instead rejecting the Messiah without even realizing it because they were more committed to and familiar with the religious culture they'd grown up in than they were committed to and familiar with the actual word of God. They practiced and preached their religious traditions and doctrines for so long they could no longer distinguish between what was religious and what was righteous, even when those two things were worlds apart. And the fact is, we do the same thing today. I've shared this story with you before. It was probably a year or two, but I think it bears repeating because it illustrates the point. When I was in seminary in Europe, it was not uncommon for the students, and uh, keep in mind, uh, this was grad school for preachers. So when I say students, this was basically all middle-aged pastors and missionaries, right? And it was not uncommon after a long day of classes, lectures, and research for many of the students and even some of the professors to head down to the local pub for a pint of beer and some legitimately incredible conversations about Jesus and biblical theology. And although this was a British university, there were students there from all over the world, including uh, some from very different religious contexts like the American Bible Belt and parts of Asia, and some of the African cultures, and others as well, where alcohol and Christianity have historically been viewed as mutually exclusive, right? In other words, they don't mix. And interestingly, there were questions raised by some of the non-European students at times to the effect of, how do you reconcile following Jesus and drinking alcohol? Which would spur what were actually some really great conversations, insightful conversations, and yet on another night in a completely unrelated conversation, the subject at one point turned to American culture, and one of the European students asked me if I had ever owned a gun. <laughs> well, yes, I said. I not only have owned a gun, I probably own enough guns to overthrow a small government like yours. <laughs> and with complete sincerity, this pastor, who by the way, is a friend of mine now and who loves Jesus just as much as I do, he asked me with all sincerity, how can you claim to be a follower of Christ and own a gun? Which led to another really great conversation. But you get the point. Sometimes we confuse, probably more often than we realize, we confuse religious traditions that are based on religious church culture with the actual teachings of God's Word until we end up focused on doctrines that aren't even in the Bible. What's worse is the fact that we can become so committed to our religious traditions and culturally based doctrines that we think we're pointing people to Jesus when all we're actually pointing them to is man-made religion which is worse, actually, than having no religion at all because of how easy it is for people to confuse being religious with being righteous. Not always the same thing. Listen, Jesus continually pointed the religious people of his day back to God's word and away from the religious culture that they had actually placed their faith in. And in the end, some followed him while others did not. But you can be sure of this. Those who chose not to follow Jesus believed with all sincerity. They believed with all their hearts that they were doing what was right 
by not following him. They were convinced they were right, that they were righteous. You see, as believers, I don't, I don't think we wake up in the morning deciding to live our lives that day outside of the perfect will of Christ. I just think sometimes we believe we're right because we've been told we are by our religious church culture, when in reality, God may be calling us to something very different than the church traditions we grew up in, which means being willing to make changes in your own life, even at the peril of some of those long-held church traditions. Listen, when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. You understand that wasn't a reference to atheists or agnostics or universalists or pluralists or people from other religions. Jesus was talking about people who professed to be Christians. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. These were religious people, people who called themselves believers, followers of Jesus Christ, who thought they were righteous people when in fact they were lost. King Saul, the man chosen by God, anointed by Samuel and followed by God's people, he was religious and he was lost. Because he learned to rely on the religious traditions he'd grown up in rather than relying on God each day to guide and direct him. C.S. Lewis said, relying on God has to start all over every day as if nothing has yet been done. Let's keep reading verses 31 through 42. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aizalon and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. They said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? 
If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. So after pursuing the Philistines all day without any food because of Saul's uh, oath, cursed be the man who eats food this day, the people are completely spent, right? However, now it's evening, and for the Jews, the new day began at sunset, which is why when Saul first uttered the oath in verse 24, he said, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I'm avenged on my enemies. And so now they can finally eat because the oath is no longer binding. And since they chased the Philistines all the way to Aijalon, they can now capture the spoils of war, namely the Philistines' livestock, because Aijalon was on the border of the Philistine plain where their livestock grazed. And yet the, the Israelites are so famished at this point, they begin to slaughter and eat the Philistines' animals right where they were without first draining the blood, which was in direct violation of the ritual requirements in the laws spelled out in uh, Genesis 9, Leviticus 7, Deuteronomy 12. And so they would normally use a large stone to elevate the animals and drain the blood, but, but not this day because they were too hungry to care, which is why when Saul hears that the people are eating the animals without draining the blood, he says, roll a great stone to me here. Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So Saul is trying to honor the ceremonial law, which is good. The problem for Saul is, this is where he places all of his faith and trust by seeking the favor of God through religious behavior instead of seeking the heart of God himself. And so he decides he's ready to continue pursuing the Philistines through the night since he did his religious duty with the animals. But the priest actually interrupts Saul and says, hey, uh, you know, how about before we do that, we actually just take a minute here to see what God wants us to do. And so Saul and the priest inquire of the Lord and receive no answer. So Saul, assuming there must be sin in the camp, calls all the leaders of the people and says, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And whoever it is who is sin, even if it's my own son, Jonathan, right? At this point, it's hyperbole on Saul's part. He's just making a point. Even if my own son sinned, that person is going to die. That is a, another very foolish vow. Just as it was Saul's own really bad decision to impose the ban on eating, which put them in this predicament to begin with, it is also his decision to now kill the person, no matter who it is, even if it's his own son, the person that broke the vow, the religious vow that is now preventing the Lord from answering Saul. And so through more religious behavior, Saul continues to dig the hole he's in even deeper with God, even deeper with the Israelites, and deeper with his own son. And so once again, Saul calls for the Urim and Thummim, which we looked at last week. These were stones or tokens kept in the breastplate of judgment, which was attached to the ephod that the high priest would wear, uh, as seen in Exodus 28.30. And the initials of the words Urim and Thummim, by the way, were the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which were probably written on the, the stones in order to tell which was which. So the high priest of Israel would cast the Urim and Thummim like dice to help them determine their best course of action when there were big important decisions that had to be made. And so as the Urim and Thummim are cast, the lots fall to Jonathan and Saul, and then they cast them again, and the lot falls to Jonathan. And so because of Saul's 
religious behavior. He makes a vow that causes the people of Israel to become so weak in battle that they're unable to complete the command of God to completely drive the Philistines out. And then because of Saul's religious behavior, the people are so hard-pressed, they sin against God's law. And then because of Saul's religious behavior, the Lord is no longer answering Saul's own prayers. And because of Saul's religious behavior, his own son, Jonathan, is now condemned to die. The fact is, sometimes religious behavior can do more harm than good. And look, it's not that religious behavior in and of itself is always bad, but if your religious behavior does not actually reflect the heart of Christ, then your religious behavior can actually do more harm than good, which is why James, the brother of Jesus, said religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1.27, this is a description of religious behavior that actually reflects the heart of God, which is the whole part that Saul was missing, which is also why when God rejected Saul as king back in chapter 13, he says to Saul through Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, right? Because although Saul knew the law, he did not know the heart of God. Why? Because he didn't seek the heart of God. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if it's the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament, or the people of God today. When it comes to our behavior, how we live our lives, religion without relationship is a recipe for disaster every single time. Yes, we should be hungry for the word of God. Yes, we should be passionate about the work of God. Yes, we should long to serve the people of God. But listen, if our desire to actually know Jesus Christ is not greater than all of that put together, then our religious behavior will ultimately hurt other people more than it will ever help them. You understand, Jesus, Jesus gave everything he had for the sake of others. And yet, do you know that every single thing that Jesus gave came directly from something he received? It's true. In John 5, 26, Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. In John 16, 15, he said, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 5, 19 and 20 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. John 14, 31, He said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In John 3, 35, John the Baptist said, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In John 3, 27, He said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And in John 13, 3 through 5, in what is one of the single greatest examples of Jesus giving to others out of all that the Father had given Him, John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This was the greatest religious act of humility 
honor and servanthood that anyone could ever perform. Listen, washing other people's feet was the job for the lowest of the low, the lowest servants in first century Hebrew culture. And yet here is Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah. He's the way, the truth and the life. He was there with the father and the Holy Spirit creating the heavens and the earth from the beginning. And here he is down on his knees, washing the filth off the feet of the men who followed him. Everything that Jesus had, including his place of honor, he gave to someone else. And yet everything that he gave came from something that he received. And where do you think he received all of that? Every bit of it came out of his relationship with the Father which is why Jesus's religious behavior was so starkly in contrast with the religious behavior of the Pharisees, because while their religion was rooted in the law, a list of rules which was reflected in their behavior, Jesus's religion was rooted in his relationship with the Father, which was reflected in his behavior. You understand, your religious behavior is meant to reflect the heart of Christ, but the only way... The only way you will ever know the heart of Jesus Christ is to know Jesus Christ. Which means whatever time and effort you spend attending church services and participating in ministry and serving other people, you must spend that much more time and effort pursuing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where he pours into you everything that you need to be able to pour into others. So that all of our religious behavior always and only comes out of our relationship with him. Because the fact is, listen, religious behavior that does not come out of a relationship with Jesus. Hear me. Religious behavior in our lives that does not come directly out of our relationship with Jesus Christ is judgmental. It is legalistic. It is condescending. It is abusive, it is counterproductive to the mission of the church and contrary to the heart of God. The fact is it does more harm than good because it actually drives people away from Jesus and his church. Which is again what, what we've witnessed in the modern church in the West over the past couple of generations. Not people who've grown tired of Jesus, but people who've grown tired of religious behavior that does not reflect the heart of Christ which means if we're going to make disciples instead of driving them away, then all of our religious behavior must be rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ more than anything else. Again, A.W. Tozer said, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. Let's finish our story for today then, verses 43 through 46. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. 
As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Jonathan explains to his father what happened with the honey, which God made available to all of Israel on the day of a long protracted battle. And yet because of Saul's foolish religious vow, Jonathan now stands in judgment as his own father condemns him to death for eating the honey that God provided for them in the first place. But then something unexpected happens. The people, recognizing the great absurdity of Saul's behavior and the great valor of Jonathan's, take matters into their own hands and they put their collective foot down and using the same oath that Saul used back in verse 39, as the Lord lives, they repeat that oath back to him and they rescue Jonathan's life, pointing out that it was Jonathan's faithful and fearless actions against the Philistines that actually reflected the heart of God and secured the victory far more than Saul's foolish religious behavior that accomplished nothing of value whatsoever, including the fact that now because of Saul, the Philistines are allowed to go back to their homes only to fight another day, which we'll see next week. You see, religious behavior is worthless when your will isn't submitted to God's. You can have the best intentions in the world, but if your will is not submitted to God's will, no matter how many good deeds you ever perform in your lifetime, none of it will amount to anything of eternal value. In fact, you know, even Jesus had to deny his own will in order to do the Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. You understand? I don't want to do this. Take this away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22, 42. There's a long sermon in that one statement right there. Jesus denied his own will in order to satisfy the Father's will. It's the very picture of obedience. And of course, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time at all, you already know how difficult that can be in your own life. I certainly do. It's so difficult sometimes to deny what we want in deference to what God wants, but Jesus could not be clearer on the matter. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. In other words, you can't call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you to do. If you refuse to do my will, then I am clearly not your Lord. Okay, religious behavior, no matter how good it may be, if it does not honor God's will, then it is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Okay, we can be religious. We can call ourselves Christians and do all the things that we've been taught that Christians are supposed to do. But if that religious behavior does not actually express the will of God, then I'm telling you, it's all for naught. It is worthless Okay, so what then is the will of God that we're supposed to submit to when it comes to our behavior, particularly our religious behavior? Well, listen, Jesus tells us that all of the law and all of the prophets, right? All of the religious 
rules and religious behavior that God has been teaching his people throughout human history, all of it is summed up in this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of it. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You, you understand if, if all of our religious behavior no matter how good it may seem to us, if our religious behavior does not express the love of God to this world, then it is worthless because the will of God is always for us to love, always to love others just as Jesus loved us. The apostle Paul said, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, <laughs> but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, and if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have all faith, faith so as to move mountains, can you imagine what kind of Christian that would be? Prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. But Paul says, but if I have all of that except for love, I'm nothing. Wow. In other words, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how magnificent how powerful, how impressive, or even how faithful my religious behavior is, if it does not express the love of God to other people, then it means nothing. You see, we can show people how to behave all day long, but if it is not clearly obvious why we're behaving that way, namely because we love God and we love them, if our behavior is not motivated by and clearly marked by love, love for God and love for the people we're with, then it means nothing. Nothing. Pastor and author Timothy Keller once said, religion says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Christianity says I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. You see, as Christians, we're supposed to represent Christ to the world. We're supposed to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to other people. And yet, if when other people look at us, they see religious behavior without love, religious behavior without the heart of Christ, religious behavior without righteousness, then honestly, what are we telling other people about who God is? Because look, for some people, you understand your life may be the only Jesus they ever see. So how is your life describing Jesus to them right now? I personally think we can afford to be a little less religious if that's what it takes to be more like Jesus. 
especially when you consider what's at stake, right? Because people don't walk away from the church and, the, and walk away from the faith because they're tired of Jesus. No, they walk away because they grow tired of religion, which makes sense. Because religion is not the answer for what ails this world anyway. Jesus is. Which means at the end of the day, all that this world really needs to see in us is Jesus. Let's pray.